years of Christ's sufficiency, his glory, our love for him. And so it's with pleasure we now get to turn to the reading, the study, the, uh, the observation of God's word and to listen as he speaks to us through his word this morning. We'll be continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and you can go ahead and make your way to Matthew 22. And while you turn there, I want to make an observation. It seems somewhat commonplace. It's become very natural to question, to challenge authority, especially in our day and age. It's almost become a virtue in and of itself to defy authority. Long gone are the days of, quote-unquote, respecting your elders, of showing deference, of showing honor, even though it's maybe expected in a few circles and in a few places, by and large, the world around us seems to have done away with those things, at least in our culture. And so I wonder how often we take the time to ask, how does God respond to disrespect and dishonor? Does God take that seriously? And let me ask you this, how can you tell if someone respects and honors another? Or maybe conversely, how can you tell if they disrespect and dishonor someone? You know, what would their speech look like? If someone honored someone, how would they talk about that person? How would they act toward that person? If you look at children that don't respect their parents. What is it about them? What is it about the way they speak, the way they act, that clues you in to that fact? Here's a tough one for you, especially if you don't necessarily agree with our current political climate. This past week, if someone were to observe your speech and your words, would they say you honor and respect your governing authorities? I won't ask for a show of hands. But I think this is an important question. I think it's one we need to consider. What does respect and honor toward God look like? And how does God, and this is really more important, how does God view and how does God respond to disrespect and dishonor? Well, it's going to become evident in why I asked that question as we open up to Matthew 22. And if you've already turned there, let's read it together. I won't read the entire chapter But we'll read this third parable Jesus has come to as he's been rebuking the Pharisees and the other religious leaders there in Jerusalem in this final week of his earthly ministry. Chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent other slaves, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened livestock, all are butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. But the king was enraged. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. 
Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you can find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text this morning, this sobering one that calls us to look carefully at our lives and how we treat, how we honor, how we respect you. Would you help us to understand it? Would you help us to live in light of it? Would you help our love for the Savior to grow through it? In your name, amen. Well, Matthew, as we've noted, continues here with this third and final parable in this interaction he's been having with the scribes and Pharisees. You remember he had come into Jerusalem, that what we call the triumphal entry. The children had been singing to him. They had been praising him. He had overturned the tables of the money changers and those who were selling the doves or the pigeons. He had rebuked them for their actions, having turned the Lord's house into a den of thieves. He returned the next day and began healing, healing those who were sick and hurting. And the children were still singing. They began to question him, by whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus refused to answer them. Instead, he answered them by means of a question that they in turn refused to answer. And so he began to rebuke them, first with one parable, then another, and now a third. And there's a common theme in these parables, and that, that common theme is how do you relate to the Father? Because how you relate to the Father will be indicative of how you relate to the Son and vice versa. This failure that they have shown to respect and honor God, they wouldn't even acknowledge that the power and the authority behind John the Baptist, the power and the authority behind the works of Christ belong to God. So they're refusing to even honor and recognize that. So that's really the theme that's at the heart of these parables. But it's that the failure to respect and honor God brings with it severe consequences. And we've already seen that through the first two parables. And the third is no different, but I think it brings it into even starker relief and drives the home the point that honor and respect are due to God and to his son. Verse 1 opens, and the they or the them there are the same they and the them from verses 45 and 46. These are the religious leaders. There are those who are in Jerusalem who have been defying God, who have been defying the Son, who have been questioning Jesus, who are seeking to put him to death. Helps to remember the audience. But they aren't the only ones there, are they? Jesus' disciples are there. Not just the 12 apostles, but that larger gathering of disciples and all of the others who had joined them that day, who had joined them on their 
pilgrimage into Jerusalem for Passover. And so while Jesus delivered this parable against the religious leaders, the intended audience, the benefit was perhaps more so for the disciples and the crowds nearby. It's a warning. A warning against acting like these religious leaders. Near the start of Jesus' public ministry, you may remember back in Matthew 5, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5.20, if you can remember back that far, it's been a little while, is not a statement concerning the quantity of good deeds, that you've got to do more than the scribes and the Pharisees, but rather the quality of those deeds. What is the source of those deeds? Why do you do what you do? Because unless that motivation surpasses the motivation, is the right motivation in comparison to the religious leaders, then your end will be the same as theirs. Again, why do you do what you do? If it is for any reason other than love for Christ, then it is worthless. If you do not have a righteousness that is given to you, then you cannot please God. Paul put it this way in his letter to Titus, in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing, the regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So he's addressing the religious leaders. He's providing a warning to those who are in attendance. And then he tells this parable. What's in this parable? Well, we open with a king. Like the father in the first parable and the landowner in the second parable, it doesn't take a lot of guessing. The king is God. The king is the father. Next, there's a son. This is the bridegroom. And while we know this is Jesus, just like the son who was sent and killed by the tenant farmers in the second parable, this time the son is really absent this parable. I mean, the wedding feast is for him. We know that much. But apart from that, the focus here is on the king and the response of the king. And there's this wedding feast. Now, there's nothing particularly remarkable about a wedding feast in and of itself. These would have been commonplace. Really not all that different from our wedding receptions where we honor the bride and the groom. There's often food, usually a lot of good food. Celebration goes into the wee hours of the morning. And so you have this wedding feast. What makes it unique is it's the king who's putting it on. There's only one king. He has only one son, so it's a unique feast in that regard. And invitations have apparently already gone out. Save the dates are not a new phenomenon. The slaves go out to call all those who have already been invited, telling them everything is ready. It is time to feast and celebrate together. Let's join together in this celebration. The response, though, is underwhelming. That's putting it mildly. It's virtually ignored. And it's really it's a reminder of Israel. And we've talked about this with the previous two parables. It's a reminder of Israel's history. In Israel's history, there were certainly times where some, even times where many, responded to the faithful teaching and proclamation of God's word and the call for repentance and for faithfully following the Lord and loving the Lord with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you know as well as I do, the overall trajectory was one of what? 
rebellion, disobedience. The same trajectory, you might say, is in the world today. Well, as we've already noted, the main character, the main subject in this parable is the king. So how does he respond to ignoring his generous offer of coming to the feast? Well, like the landowner in the previous parable, he's very gracious. He's merciful. He sends more slaves. He, he gives them another opportunity so that they are without excuse. Reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 1.20 where he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, that is all mankind, are without excuse. And so notice the character of this king. He is patient. He is merciful. He is gracious. He's slow to take offense. He is not yet offended. Perhaps they have misunderstood. Perhaps they don't really realize what is in store for them. So like Israel of old, he continues to send the prophets and unveil more and more and more of the plan. And so he tells his servants, go get their attention. Tell them what I've prepared. Get into the details. And so the king instructs the slaves to describe the menu and the preparations. He says, behold, get their attention with these things. Have you ever noticed when you go into a restaurant, usually a nicer restaurant to sit down, they'll ask you if you'd like to hear the specials of the day. Sometimes they won't even ask. They just start to tell you about them. They start to describe it. And they use all of these fancy words that we don't really know what they mean, but they are fancies, so they must be good. They begin describing, your mouth begins to water as you hear the, the different descriptions of the food that the chef has carefully and specially prepared that day. Now, why do they do that? They do it to whet your appetite, to entice you, to get you excited about the meal. The king wants to whet the appetite of the expected worshipers, of those who are going to come and honor the sun. And so he describes what has been prepared. And for a southerner, it looks like a good barbecue. But how do they respond? How do they respond to this delicious menu and the extravagant preparations that have been made for them to enjoy? Dishonor. They insult the dignity of the king. Many of them act as if there's still no invitation at all, right? They go about their normal daily routine. That smell of barbecue wafting in from the king's home. And they still ignore it. Clearly, they're not Southerners. No Southerner would have ignored the smell of barbecue. But perhaps there's also a good reminder here for us of the effect of sin. Sin doles our conscience. It numbs us to the word. For those who have never experienced that transforming, that washing, that regeneration, that renewing by the Holy Spirit, Paul describes them as what in Ephesians 2? Dead in our trespasses and sin. How much can a dead person taste? What can they smell? What can they feel? But even for those of us who are sitting here who have tasted the goodness of the Lord, have experienced the regeneration, you know as well as I do the effect sin has on our life, do you not? It begins to mess with us. We're desensitized to God's word. So take this as a warning, as a reminder, the effect of sin. Be 
Because just as we see in these, it is a dishonor to God to not respond to the king. No matter how enticing the meal, sin is going to inhibit our ability to respond. And yet it does not excuse or minimize the dishonor. We are, as Paul noted in Romans 1, without excuse. So what might have been initially perceived as a misunderstanding is now not just an insult, it's outright rebellion by the invitees. It's a refusal to respond to the call of the king. It's a rejection of the kindness of the king, and it will be punished. The king desires to lavish riches upon them. I mean, look at verse 4. He has spared no expense, but they reject the offer. Then, like those who store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, their sole focus is on selfish, earthly pursuits. Now, there is a time for commerce. There is a time for business. There is a time for going about your daily chores. This isn't it. When the king has prepared a banquet, you stop what you're doing and you respond to the king. How you respond to the king, how you respond to God's word, says everything about what you really think about him. You know, we need to stop here for a moment because while we have a harder time seeing ourselves in the response in verse 6, I mean, we're not going to abuse the messengers. We're not going to murder them. Yet how often do we act like the invitees in verse 5? We come to church. We hear all that God has done for us, all that he has prepared for us. Or maybe during the week, you open up your Bible and it's, you're reminded of the goodness of God, his gifts upon you. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, he is He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And yet we return home, we go about our day as if nothing is different. Nothing has changed. James describes it this way in James 1, 21 through 24. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. He is completely unaffected, completely unchanged. Returning to the question we started with this morning, do you realize how much you are dishonoring God when you do that? Do you realize the great insult you bring to God when you do that? When nothing changes, when you are unresponsive to his word, to the preaching, to the reading, to the study, to the teaching of his word. Well, how does the king respond? Parable doesn't stop there. Before we even get to the king's response, the scene turns violent. There are those who, instead of passive rebellion, resort to outright violence. Like the tenant farmers of the previous parable, they abuse, they mistreat, and they kill the messengers and slaves of the king. This unwillingness and rejection really prepares us for Matthew's words in a couple of chapters, or another chapter later, in Matthew 23, verse 37, where 
Jesus looks over Jerusalem, weeps over her, and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. You were unresponsive. You went about your daily business as if there was no call, as if there was no offer, as if there is no king. How does the king respond? He responds in rage. We're often used to talking about God and the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God, and that is all there. But you know what heightens his mercy? You know what heightens his grace? You know what heightens his love all the more? how severe his wrath is. And it's unveiled in horrendous detail in Revelation. There's warnings in Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. We see it in the Old Testament repeatedly. He is patient. He is forbearing. But he is just and he is righteous. And there will be a time when he must execute his wrath. And so he sends his armies. He destroys the murderers, sets fire to the city and to this rebellious, unresponsive people. All the rebellious in the city are caught up in this response. All suffer and die the same fate, the same judgment. Whether it's passive rebellion or outright abuse and bloodshed, all ultimately receive the same sentence of death. In case you were thinking, well, that's not fair. There's some there who, you know, maybe they weren't murderers. Well, everyone there, if everyone was there, that means they weren't where? At the banquet. Everyone there had dishonored the king. Everyone in that city was in rebellion. Some tie the city here to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And honestly, that certainly fits. It perfectly encapsulates the judgment of God upon those who ignore and reject his invitation, who murder and kill his messengers. It's a perfect illustration. I don't think it's the only illustration, but it fits hand in glove. Jerusalem killed not only the prophets in the past, but will go on to kill many of the apostles, those religious leaders. Remember a man named... Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, who set about killing many of those disciples. Every opportunity is given for repentance, but they refuse the invitation, and the city is destroyed. After which time, the message and the invitation spreads far and wide. And just before his ascension, Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, in Samaria. And you notice this is expanding. You've got Jerusalem, you've got Judea, you've got Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. I got ahead of myself a little bit, didn't I? Verses 9 and 10. Where do they go? They go to the main highways and the byways. Why? Because there's nothing left of the city. They have to go outside of the city limits. The city's been burned. It's been raised to the ground. The judgment of God has come upon the city. Those who reject the invitation of God and dishonor him will be judged. 
And so the remaining slaves of the king, those who have not been murdered and who are sent out, gather together all they find, both evil and good, and the wedding hall is now filled with dinner guests. Now, if you're like me and you read that, you said, wait a second, what do you mean evil and good? Why would he bring the evil in there? Who are these evil? What does that even mean? There's really two possibilities. You could probably come up with a third or fourth if you're really creative. There's really two possibilities. The first is that it's a reference to how persons appear in this life. In other words, Jesus has already said to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the religious leaders, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before they do. Now, when you think of a tax collector, even today, or a prostitute, you don't think, oh, that's a good person. And we know that God saves them. Many of them responded to the call of repentance of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And so, as a truism, that fits. But is that what he's talking about here? I don't think so. And I think that because Jesus actually gives us an illustration of the evil in verses 11 through 13. Here's an example of what the evil person looks like. Because we're not done learning about how God responds to dishonor. He showed us very clearly what it looks like in Israel's history that certainly would have come to mind. They understood it. That's why they plotted to kill him all the more aggressively after he tells this parable. They realized he was talking about them. It would apply to all who would dishonor him, all who would refuse the message, but certainly it applied to them. Well, the king enters the banquet hall and he begins to survey the guests. He's glad to see them enjoying the food and everything else, but there's a certain guest who catches his attention. Something about him stands out. Something is different and not in a good way. He's not dressed in wedding clothes. When confronted, he has no answer, so he's bound. He's cast into the outer darkness. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's judged just like those who, are outright, who outright ignored and even killed the king's messengers. That seems a bit extreme for violating a dress code, doesn't it? Let's look a little closer. There's a couple details here that are significant. The first is the wedding clothes themselves. And, and it's possible to get distracted in this discussion. In fact, there have been a lot of suggestions about what these wedding clothes are. Where did they come from? Some have said, well, the, the king would have given to the guests as they arrived. Well, maybe, but it didn't say that. And there's no historical evidence that that ever took place in any large scale. We do know that when, in the first century, certainly in Judea or in Israel, but even outside of there in the ancient Near East and in the Greek and the Roman world, you know, at a wedding feast, you would put on your best. If you only had one pair of clothes, you washed them, and you, you arranged them a little bit differently. Normally, they'd be hiked up a little higher because you're going about the daily business and you don't want to trip over what you're wearing, but you would, you would rearrange your, your garments so they hung lower. They looked different and they were clean even if you didn't have a new one. There's a lot of suggestions, as I noted, about what these wedding clothes mean. And, and the problem is that most of them are good suggestions, and that's what makes it hard to pick out which is the right one. So how do we determine what it means when nothing else is stated? 
And, I, and I will, in a minute, I'm going to tease you with it. In a minute, we'll come back to what a few examples that even Scripture provides of garments could mean. But I want to start by saying I think we're asking the wrong question. We're not going to get distracted. We're asking the wrong question. The question is not, what are the garments? Because that's not the focus, is it? He's not looking at the garments that everybody else is wearing. He's not looking at what are the right garments. What is he asking? What is he looking at? What is the focus? The focus is the wrong garments, the wrong clothing. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have the wrong clothes? That's the catalyst for the king's attention. That's what caught his eye. It's the reason that he asked the question. It's the reason he's th- the attendee is thrown out. I think we can be fairly succinct in our answer. There's a parallel here in how this man is judged, and those are judged in verse 7. This man's judgment is the same, ultimately, as those who are destroyed in verse 7. Both of them are descriptions of destruction. And when you realize that, it becomes clear very quickly that not having a wedding garment stems from the same heart of disrespect and dishonor. Rather than being clothed and dressing himself for the wedding, he's come the way he wants to come. He's come in rebellion, a heart of rebellion, a heart of dishonor. It was too much to wash my clothes. It was too much to arrange them the right way. I'm coming the way I want to come. I will worship God the way I want to worship. It was a sign of disrespect. It was a sign of dishonor. The exact same thing that those in the city had done. Only he's doing it at the wedding feast. The purpose of the wedding clothes was honor and respect, not expense and extravagance. For a wedding, you put on your best. If you only had one set of clothes, like we've already said, they'd be cleaned, they'd be washed. You would arrange them so they hung a little bit lower. It was a little more formal. It was done to honor the bridegroom or the wedding host and nothing more. Again, certainly not to draw attention to oneself. Jews were expected to dress differently on the Sabbath for a similar reason as a show of honor and respect. Not dressing for the wedding was the same as not preparing for Christ's return. It's the same as not preparing to honor the Lord. It's the same as showing disrespect to God. Now, what of the garment itself or the wedding garments? Well, it could mean many different things. That's why I think there's so many good answers. I don't actually disagree with many of them. But now, by understanding what it's not, we can understand that the garment itself would have centered around showing honor, respect, and worship of the king. Well, what shows honor, respect, and worship to God? If you want to find application in the garment, you can go a lot of places. For example, Jesus has highlighted the fact that The religious leaders failed to repent, even when the tax collectors and prostitutes did in verse 31 of the previous chapter. And so repentance over sin exhibits respect and honor and could be seen as the clothes that are worn. We've seen the necessity of good works that demonstrate love and respect. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, here the king does give fine linen, linen that is called the righteous acts, the righteous acts of the saints. They're described as fine linen and are to be worn at a wedding banquet. Only there, those wearing it are the bride. In Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah describes being clothed with garments of salvation. 
and a robe of righteousness. Again, as a bridegroom or as a bride would adorn themselves. The point then of the parable is to look at the lack of appropriate clothing. If we want to apply this to ourselves, how do I appropriately adorn myself? How do I come before the king? There's many, many different ways. But here, our focus is on the king. How does he respond to the lack of honor and respect? The lack of submission? Well, the bad from verse 10 we see is illustrated by a single guest who stands as a type of those who want to partake of the blessings of the wedding feast but are still unwilling to honor the king. It reminds us of the parables in Matthew 13 where many will be netted and gathered together in the end and God will sort out the believing from the unbelieving. In fact, you can turn there to Matthew 13. Just take a left in your Bibles, just a few pages. There in Matthew 13, verse 47, we read, and you'll see the similarity of language here at the end. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now when you read this parable in Matthew 22, the dishonor and rebellion of this guest is not as obviously wicked as those who killed the servants. Nor is, is it as overt as those who outright ignore the king. And yet the end is exactly the same. At the end of the day, all rebellion, all dishonor, all defiance will be punished. None are going to escape it. So was it just a message for Israel? The Holy Spirit through Matthew included this parable of all the parables Jesus told throughout his entire ministry. John tells us, near the end of his gospel, that if he were to try to record everything that Jesus said and did, the earth could not contain it all. So they were selective. Of all that could have been selected, the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, included this parable so that we would have this reminder today. In other words, it's just as important for us to read this and to view it as it was for the disciples and the crowds that day. Just as the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders and all those who followed them are judged, there is a warning, there is a reminder that all who come after them will also be judged for dishonoring the king. It applies to the church. It is good and right to ensure we have a genuine love for Christ and for the Father. It is good to ask, are you cultivating that love? And is it expressed in righteous living? Similar to the question of, based on how I spoke, how I acted this week, could you tell that I show respect for my governing authorities? Now make that question about God. Make it about Christ. If someone were able to follow you all week, listen to you all week, watch you all week, would they say you honor God? Would they say that you love Christ? Paul tells us in Romans 11 that the unfaithful from Israel were for our benefit. 
But he also tells us we must not become arrogant and forget the lesson. He says in 11:19, you will say then branches were broken off, branches of the olive tree of Israel, so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Do not think that simply because you've grown up in a church, you've attended Bible study for a long time, or you call yourself a Christian by your own lips, that is enough. The only basis you have for confidence is the grace and the mercy of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have confidence in any other thing, any work that you've done, any family you've been born into, any church you've attended, then I have sobering news for you. If that is your confidence, then you will fall. You will be cast out. You are not dressed for the wedding. If your motivation for doing good deeds is anything other than loving the Savior and loving the Father, then your end will be the same as the dishonorable wedding guest. Jesus summarizes the parable with the sobering words, many are called, but few are chosen. It's probably best translated as more are called. Indeed, all are called, but fewer are chosen. That term call is used a couple different ways throughout the Bible. And Paul uses it predominantly one way. It's in the Old Testament, it's used predominantly another. In the Gospels, it's used slightly different. There's a general call, the invitation that goes out to all the world. It's the call that makes us all without excuse. Then there's the specific, or what we might describe as the effectual call, which is the choosing. How do you know you've been called? That's a good question. Have you ever heard God's word preached recently? Have you ever read the Bible? If so, he is calling to you. In that general sense. So the responsibility for you, if you have never done this, is to repent and believe, to cry out for the mercy of the king, the grace of the king. You have been ignoring him. And yet he's come again. He is called again. Do not be like those wicked invitees who when the servants and the slaves came back around a second time, beat, abused, ignored them, and suffered the judgment of the king. Do not delay. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So how can I have confidence? Well, if you're asking that question, that's a really good start. It's a really good place to be. Because if you're dead, you're not responding with that question. If you are asking, how can I have that confidence? Know this, 
It is right there within your grasp. The Spirit is already at work in your heart. Cry out to him for mercy. Call to him while he can be found. For the rest of us, remember, remind yourself that repentance is not a once and done act. It is something we daily do so that we do not harden ourselves like Israel did in the wilderness. So we're reminded in Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as the children of Israel did at Meribah. Where they grumbled and they complained and in their sin, God judged them. God will judge and discipline even those he loved. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of that, doesn't he? And so humble yourself, repent of your sin. Do not, do not miss out on the barbecue. The Lord is prepared for those who love him and is preparing for those who love him. A home, a future beyond anything you can imagine. The question is, will you honor the king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so patient with us, so gracious to us. We are a hard people. We are a stubborn people. We are slow to learn. Help us soften our hearts. Help us to be quick to repent, quick to turn from sin, to not miss the call, to not dishonor you, to not, not turn our back to you in any way at any time. Forgive us where we have sinned. Forgive me where I have sinned. Help us to, as we've opened up your word this morning, as we open it up through the week, as you bring scriptures to mind, help us to be doers of your word out of a love for you. Would you rekindle, kindle anew, kindle brighter, kindle stronger the fires of our affection, that we would love you and we would want to serve you from that love. In your name, amen. Let's stand as we sing together.